His name was George Stinney. He was a 14-year-old black boy, and he was executed by the state of South Carolina on June 16, 1944. Three months prior to his execution, two young white girls had gone missing. They had left home to go pick some flowers, and they just never returned. And everyone in the community went out searching for them, and this included George and his siblings. At some point, George mentioned to one of the white adults he was searching alongside that he had actually seen the girls that day, earlier that day, and they had approached him while he was playing with his brothers and sisters and asked him if he knew where they might find some flowers. The next day, the girls were found in a ditch, and George was immediately arrested for their murders. He was subjected to hours of interrogation without his parents. He didn't have an attorney present. And after these hours, the sheriff claimed that George had confessed to the murders, though no written or signed statements were ever produced. As a result, George's father was fired, and and he was told that he and his family should leave town or else they would be lynched. And out of fear for their lives, George's family fled town, leaving him alone in jail. A month later, George was sitting on trial facing charges of first-degree murder in front of, uh, in front of a, an estimated crowd of 1,500 white people who had packed the courtroom and surrounded the building. No African-Americans were allowed inside. And George's white court-appointed attorney, a tax lawyer with political aspirations, called not one single witness. And the prosecution's only evidence was the sheriff's testimony about George's alleged confession. The trial lasted a couple hours, and then it only took 10 minutes for the all-white jury to come back with a conviction. And he was sentenced to death, this 14-year-old boy. There was no appeal because there was no money for the appeal. And two months later, two months later, George who was small for his age, only five foot two, weighed about 92 pounds, walked up to the electric chair with only a Bible in his hands. In fact, he was so small that the guards used the Bible for him to sit on so that they could properly fit him. He died alone. No family was present, only guards and some reporters. And it wasn't until years later that a white man from a prominent family confessed on his deathbed to killing those two little girls. Everything about this story is horrific. Everything about this story is awful. The injustice in it is infuriating. And even as I retell it to you, I'm feeling as if I had just heard it for the first time. I read this story months ago. I read this story in a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, a book that I encourage you to read. Um, it's a book that, besides the Bible, has impact, has never, I mean, I, there's no other book besides that one that has impacted me as greatly. In this book, Brian Stevenson seeks to answer the question of how and why people are judged unfairly, particularly in our country. And so as as, as I started to study and prepare for this week, for us talking about this trial of Jesus before the high priest, I ended up thinking a lot about that book. And I realized how often I have passed over the injustice that Jesus suffered. And I wondered why that was. Why have I never really sat in the injustice of Jesus? 
Because injustice in our legal system has always bothered me. Ever since I read To Kill a Mockingbird when I was in seventh grade, I have wanted to be a lawyer and I've wanted to write injustice like this. So being a Christian all these years, why have I never really thought about or sat in the injustice that Jesus suffered during his trial? Why have I never focused on that? Well, when it comes to Jesus's last day, I've mostly thought about his willingness to die for my sins, which is true and it's great and I'm so thankful for that. But this week I started by asking the question, why have I never sat in this? Why have I always immediately gone to the cross of Jesus and not spent any time thinking about the injustice of the trial of Jesus? Again, like we've said the last couple weeks, the gospel writers purposely slow down the narrative of Jesus's life when it gets to the last day. It's as if they want us to think about every single step that led to his death. I think we're supposed to give more time to this than just our lunch hour on Good Friday. These writers of the gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intended for us to pay attention, not just to the cross, but what led to the cross. So I think we're supposed to sit in the injustice for a bit. And I get why I don't want to do that. I get why I haven't done that. I'd rather read some New Testament letter that tells me because of Jesus's death and resurrection, this is how I should then live. Because that's something I can do, that's something actionable, and it's way of a less downer. But here's the thing. If I take time to consider what led to Jesus's death, if I look at the injustice and the details of an unfair trial, it might lead me to being just as outraged in the same way that I'm outraged about George Steiny. And what do I do with that? What do I do with my outrage? Where do I focus it? Should I be outraged at the high priest, the Jewish leaders? Should I be outraged at the disciples for not speaking up? Or should I be outraged at myself because I know it was my sin that led Jesus to the cross? But where did Jesus focus his outrage? In this series, we've been trying to focus not primarily on us, but on him. Because there's something about seeing Jesus on this last day as he faced great suffering that we begin to get a clearer picture of him. So as Jesus faced an unjust trial, where was his outrage? Well, let's read the trial together. It's printed in your bulletin, um, or you can you know, look it up in your Bible or on your phone. This is John 18. I'm gonna read verses 12 through 14, and then 19 through 24. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him, and they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify 
as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is God's word. Okay, so first we have to, we have to, we have to discuss who Annas is and who Caiaphas is and what is a high priest. Now, a high priest was a representative of, of God. I mean, a representative of the people of God to God. So the high priest served many functions, but one of his most significant functions took place on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was on this day that the priest would go into the Holy of Holies of the temple and atone for the people's sins. Now, it's interesting to note that the people could make sacrifices to atone for their sins apart from the high priest. There was all these lists of sins, and then if you commit this sin, then you offer a dove, or if you commit this sin, you've got to offer a lamb. I mean, there were were all these things that they could offer on their own. But on Yom Kippur, the high priest made a sacrifice to atone for all the sins the people had committed that they were unaware of. So it's kind of it's kind of like you know asking Jesus into your heart every time you get on a plane. Just you know, might as well be safe, right? Right? Like it's that kind of the Yom Kippur. What the high priest did on that day was was to go in and offer sac- sacrifice, so that even if you didn't know you had done something wrong, you knew you were okay. So the high priest served an important role to God's people throughout the Old Testament. But by the time of Jesus, this role had become less pastoral and more political. Annas was the high priest from 6 AD to until 15 AD. Now, generally, the high priest was a high priest for life, but the Roman government had noticed that Annas was gaining a lot of political power, so they deposed him. And following him, five of his sons ended up becoming the high priest. They kind of kept going high priest to high priest to high priest. They were all in his family. And then at the time that we're at now, it was his son-in-law, Caiaphas, as the official high priest. But Annas still pulled the strings. In fact, it was Annas who controlled the exchange rates at the temple and the selling of lambs and doves and such things for sacrifices. You see, if you went into the temple and you wanted to make an offering um, in the temple, you would, uh, you would come in probably with, with Roman coins, but you couldn't, you couldn't offer Roman coins because on a Roman coin had a, had a picture, an inscription of Caesar, and that was considered to be an idol. And so you would have to exchange that for temple currency. Well, under Annas, the exchange rate was astronomical. It was outrageous. It was, it, was, it was completely unjust what he was doing, the exchange rate. And then not only that, if you were to bring sacrificial animals to the temple to make atonement, your animals had to be without spot or without blemish. And under Annas, 10 out of 10 animals that you brought from home were deemed defective. And so you would have to pay double the price for an animal approved and provided to you by temple officials. So in a way, first century temple was like the original magic kingdom, right? You know, like a you know, turkey leg for the same price you could get a whole turkey, right? So I mean, this, is, this, is, this was what was going on inside the temple. Now, the Talmud, which is an ancient rabbinical document, an ancient Jewish document, this is what it had to say about Annas. Woe to the house of Annas. Woe to their serpent's hiss. They are high priests. They are sons and keepers of the treasury. They are son-in-laws are guardians of the temple, and their servants beat the people with staves. So it's not just the writers of the Bible who didn't have a a good opinion of Annas and Caiaphas. They were notorious to everyone. And Jesus, very early in his ministry, remember what he does? He goes into the temple, 
into the temple courts. And what does he do? He clears it out. He knocks over the tables of the money changers and he says, this is a den of thieves. Well, now Annas, the one whom Jesus called out is acting as his judge. So we know whom we're dealing with. So now how is a trial supposed to go? Well, first of all, it's supposed to happen in the middle of the day. And this is probably three or four in the morning. So right at the beginning, this is an unjust trial. Then verse 19, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now the Jewish people prided themselves on being people of justice. And in fact, in the law of God, primarily in Deuteronomy, the book we often skip when we read our Bible, but in the book of Deuteronomy, it has laid out these strict commands that make it almost impossible for an unjust trial to occur. The Jewish people prided themselves on this. And one of those commands is that the accused, the one who is, who is being brought on trial, is never required to testify or answer any questions. In fact, we have, we have the same law here. Instead, witnesses are called to speak at the trial both against the accused and on behalf of the accused. And how the trials were structured is all those who were, who were speaking for the accused would go first, and then it would be followed by the accusations. But it was extremely daunting and even dangerous to be an accuser. First, if you were an accuser, you had to have at least one other eyewitness whose story was identical to yours, down to the smallest details. There was one Jewish trial around this same time that was overturned because two eyewitnesses described differently the shapes of leaves on the tree where the alleged crime took place. Second, the accusers could not themselves have committed the same sin. So to, to be an accuser, you had to be blameless in this one area. And lastly, and here's the dangerous part. If the accuser made false testimony and it was proved that they had done so, they would suffer whatever consequences the accused would have suffered had they been convicted. So if you accuse someone of a capital offense and, and, and you were false in your accusations, you would be the one put to death in their place. It's also worth noting that in a capital offense, the accusers would have to be the first to throw the stones. So, so, so in a way, if you lied in your accusations, not only would you be a liar, but now you are a murderer of an innocent person. So don't you see how the, the law of God made it very difficult, first of all, for any person to be accused of anything, and then even harder to be put to death. And even if the accused was convicted, and it was a capital offense, the council would have to wait until the third day for execution to take place, allowing a second day, a day in the middle for prayer and fasting, allowing some space and time for their hearts and minds to be changed or for new evidence to be brought forward. I think it's fascinating that Jesus rose on the third day and he was executed on the day of his conviction. So, Annas immediately questions Jesus. He's brought before Annas and immediately he starts questioning him. He's, he's already starting off by disregarding the law of God. And then Jesus responds in verses 20 and 21. I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's calling on Annas to follow the law. He's saying, all right, call witnesses. 
He's giving Annas the opportunity to have a just trial. Why? Why would he want that? Well, I think it's because he wants Annas to actually see him. I think he wants Annas to actually encounter who he is. He's wanting Annas to repent and believe in him. But then in verses 23 and 24, it says, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Do you see what Jesus did there? Again, Jesus asked a question. Again, Jesus is seeking sinful man with questions. Questions invite relationships. Jesus is enduring the most unjust trial in the history of the world. And he's looking at this probably very young, very pompous, very wanting to, to get on the good side of Annas, this, this young uh, temple guard. And Jesus is inviting him into a relationship. He's saying, tell me what you think I did that was wrong. Tell me why you don't trust me. And if you can't answer that, why'd you hit me? He doesn't say, how dare you hit me? He asks him, why do you hit me? Do you see his, his question invites repentance? And the reason Jesus doesn't answer the questions of the high priest is because Jesus is not there seeking mercy. He's there offering it. He's offering mercy again and again. The high priest, the true high priest, Jesus, is offering mercy to these sinful, broken men. Romans 2, 4, God's kindness leads to repentance. You see, it's his kindness in the midst of injustice that is an invitation for conviction, not of himself, but of his, of his accusers. Why? So that they can repent and believe who he is. In fact, that's, that's the whole point of John's gospel. John, at the end of his gospel, in John 20, 31, he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So see, Jesus' questions to the high priest and to this guard is that same invitation. He's inviting them to repent and believe. So where's his outrage? I went through all, I mean, I didn't even go through all the information that, that's out there about trials and, and the law of God. I mean, it was from the beginning, it was unjust. Everything they did was unjust. So where did Jesus focus his outrage during this unjust trial? Because it wasn't towards the high priest and it wasn't towards this pompous young guard and it's not towards us. So to answer this question, to be able to see where Jesus focused his outrage during his unjust trial, I think we have to go back a little bit in John's gospel. And I think John gives us a hint where to look. Look again at verse 14. Verse 14, after he was arrested and brought to Annas, John reminds us, he says, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. See, that's the hint. That's the hint that John's giving us to the answer to this question. Now, I know I'm getting a little Carmen Sandiego on you, but, but stick with me because I'm going somewhere. Okay, so when did Caiaphas say that? Well, let's look at it really quickly. Um, it is, it's in John 11, and I'm gonna start reading in the 45th verse. John 11, starting in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. <coughs> if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So Caiaphas said this in response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. What, what everyone was responding to was the fact that all of a sudden this dead man got up and walked out of a tomb. And from that day on, we're told that the religious leaders plotted to take Jesus's life. And Jesus knew that if he raised Lazarus, he would be forcing the hands of his enemies. Therefore, he knew the only way to stop Lazarus's funeral was to, to pretty much ensure his own. When Jesus says Lazarus come out, he is signing his own death warrant and he knows it. But he knows his real enemy isn't Caiaphas and it isn't the Pharisees. When you and I, when we think of the story of Lazarus, I think, well, you might not, but I do. I always think of the, the shortest verse in all of scripture, uh, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. When I think of the tomb of Lazarus, I think of the fact that we have a God who cries. And listen, we need a God who weeps uh, because if our God doesn't weep, then he can't wipe away our tears. We need a God who weeps. But more is going on in the raising of Lazarus because when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, we're told he is deeply moved. And the Greek word literally means to snort or to bellow with anger. It's a word that's usually only used to describe the sound an animal makes. So when Jesus comes to the tomb after weeping with Mary and Martha, we, we are told that, that there's this anger welling up in him. It's almost like this primordial rage in him. And, and he responds. What's he angry about? He's angry about death because death is terrible because death is not supposed to be, because death hangs over every relationship. It destroys family, it shatters dreams. I just, I met a girl just recently whose fiance was killed in a car accident and it's, a, it's, it's wrecked her. Death is not a part of the beauty of life. I just saw a couple weeks ago, I took the kids to see The Lion King at the Dr. Phillips Center and um, and uh, uh, the, the first song, The Circle of Life, um, it always makes me cry um, because I'm soft, but also um, uh, because of just the beauty of all these animals coming and, and it, you know, it's people, but they're in animal things. And it's just, it's just, if you've never seen it, it's incredible to watch. And then there's the key changes in the song. And so like, it gets me every time, but the message of the song is so wrong. Death is, I mean, death is not a part of the circle of life. It's not this beautiful thing that you and I get to be a part of. It is part of the brokenness that Jesus came to heal. So when Jesus was confronted with death, he bellows in rage, rage out of love for you and I. If you've done some great work of art and you hang it up somewhere and someone comes by it and destroys it or defaces it, you're gonna get angry. 
you've raised a child and then all of a sudden you see these friends kind of seducing this child to do things that you know are gonna hurt them, that are gonna cause pain, you're gonna get angry. Anger and outrage is a sign of love. The more love you feel for something, the more anger and outrage you feel when that love is threatened. The theologian John Calvin said this of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. Christ does not come to the tomb as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death that he had to overcome stands before his eyes. Jesus's outrage and anger is always focused towards sin and death, never towards sinners. Jesus isn't mad at you. Jesus wasn't mad at Annas or Caiaphas or that young guard. He was mad at sin for ravaging our hearts. Sin and death are the only enemies, true enemies of God. You and I cannot be. One more quick story and then we're done. Um, There's a vision in the Old Testament uh, of the prophet Zechariah. He has this vision and it's a vision of a high priest standing before uh, God's holy courtroom. And in this vision, it's found in Zechariah 3 if you, wanna, if you wanna look at it later. But in, in, this, in this vision, the high priest, whose name was Joshua, is standing there before the courtroom of God, before the, before the holy judge, and he's in filthy clothes. Now, the high priest knew what he had to do in order to be acceptable before God. There were certain outfits he had to wear. He had to wear these garments and a turban. He had to go through this ritual bathing He knew what he had to do to be acceptable, but there he is and he's standing there and he's in filthy rags. And we're told that there's Satan in that courtroom too and Satan is standing there ready to accuse him. And then we're told there's one other being in the courtroom. We're told the angel of the Lord is there as well. Now the angel of the Lord, when he appears throughout the Old Testament, uh, he speaks as if he is God. And in fact, his interactions with people are the same as if they were having interaction with the living God. And so most commentators and theologians believe that in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, what you're actually seeing is the second person of the Trinity. You're seeing Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. You're seeing Jesus Christ before uh, before he took on flesh. And so in this courtroom, you have Joshua standing there in filthy rags. You've got Satan standing there ready to accuse him. And you have Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ is the only one who does anything in this vision. We're told he looks at Joshua and he cleans away all the filth. And he says to him, look, I've taken away your sin. And then he says, and and now I will put royal garments on you. He clothes Joshua. Now, it's important that both those things happen in this vision because what it means is to be cleansed of filth, to be forgiven of sin, means that Joshua, the high priest, can now leave the courtroom and know that he's free of guilt. But because Jesus then takes another step and clothes him, that means he can stay in the courtroom free of fear. He is now acceptable in the eyes of a holy God because he's been clothed by Christ. That's the gospel, that you and I are not only cleansed of our sins, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He only sees the beauty of Jesus Christ. God is not mad at you. So that's good news. 
But Jesus does something significant before he does any of that. And I think it gets to the heart of what Jesus was outraged about during his unjust trial. Before Jesus cleanses Joshua, before he takes away his sin, before he clothes him, we're told that Jesus looks past Joshua at Satan and he speaks and he says, I rebuke you, Satan. I rebuke you. Is not this man like a burning stick snatched from the fire? Essentially, what Jesus says to Satan is, you have absolutely nothing to bring here. Your accusations, even if they're true, and, and, and when it comes to accusing us, Satan has, has a lot of truth on his side. He is the father of lies, but there's a lot of truth that he could bring to that courtroom. But Jesus looks across Joshua to Satan. He says, nothing you have will make a difference. Even if they did that evil thing that they stand here accused of, I've already chosen to love them, to forgive them, to cleanse them and clothe them. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless in his sight. Jesus is looking at Satan. He's saying, this is already done. This has already been decided. You have already lost. This was decided before the beginning of time. I am the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. I, as their true high priest, have already decided to offer myself as their atoning sacrifice. And on the cross, as our perfect sacrifice, Jesus would declare, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. So as that unjust trial of Jesus was happening, he was not outraged at sinful men who stood there as his accusers. And he was not outraged at us whose sin would lead him to the cross. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So no, as Jesus endured the injustice of this trial, he was not outraged by you and I but he could hear the words of a promise made long ago in a garden to a serpent. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. The only thing that makes Jesus angry is sin and death. There is nothing about you that causes Jesus to be outraged. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that in Jesus Christ, uh, we can see who the true enemy is. Father, so often we hear the accuser's voice and we say, yeah, I am unlovable. I am unwantable. But Jesus, in your earthly ministry, we see you again and again inviting sinful people to trust you. That your outrage is always against sin and death. It's never against people. And so, Father, I pray that that truth and that, that truth of who Jesus is would so penetrate our hearts that as we move out into the world, we would live like that. 
we would live in the knowledge of that love, that furious love that is angered by injustice and sin and death. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that while we were still sinners, he decided to die for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.